All right, Revelation chapter number 12. Revelation chapter number 12. Um, there comes a time in every part of a Bible study that you go, wow. Um, it gets really deep and starts, getting, it starts bogging you down a little bit. And uh, we've hit that point in Revelation chapter number 12 um, and, uh, and, and, and forward to Revelation chapter number uh, 19. And so uh, in, this, in these next few weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at these passages of Scripture. And, and, and the honest truth is, is that I, I'm just going to give you biblically um, what I believe uh, each of these uh, represent. I'm going to uh, historically try to uh, encourage you. But the honest truth is, is that uh, some of this is very difficult to interpret. Some of it is very difficult to understand. Uh, but we will do the very best that we can. Um, so we're, tonight we're going to talk about the seven personalities of the Great Tribulation. The seven personalities of the Great Tribulation. Uh, I'll probably be honest with you, we probably will not get through this lesson tonight, but we will uh, do the best that we can. We're going to start right at the top of your outline um, and uh, cover the seven personalities of the Great Tribulation. The beginning with this lesson, we will temporarily accelerate our study to the book of Revelation until we come to chapter number 19. And there are two reasons for this, and I just want to kind of give these to you as our thought process, because I know it's taken us a long time to get to where we're at now in chapter number 12, and now you're going to feel like that we've hit the fast board button. Uh, but there's a reason for that, because we are kind of in a, if I could use this, terminolo- term, this term to you, we're kind of in a parenthesis, uh, starting in verse number, uh, chapter number 12. We, we have hit a moment of literally things have begun to slow down um, as far as the, the, the wrath and as far as the, the tribulation is concerned. And, and now literally what's happening in Revelation chapter number 12 uh, to cha- uh, chapter number 19, there's, there's a parenthesis that happens. There's a more of an explanation of things that are happening. But the problem is, is that when you begin to unfold them and what John is seeing, uh, he can only describe things that he knows and that he's seen in his life. And so when he begins to describe those to us, sometimes it becomes difficult to understand exactly what they mean. So for that reason, we are going to temporarily accelerate. That does not mean we're not going to cover it. We're just not going to be able to cover it in depth like we've covered chapters 1 through chapter number 11. And there's two reasons for this. Number one, it will prevent us from getting bogged down in chapters 12 through 18 with things that we cannot fully understand or interpret. These chapters symbolically describe some literal events that occur during the latter part of the tribulation and cannot be fully understand from this point in time. So literally these are, these are things that are occurring in the last three and a half years of the tribulation and uh, it, it's things that we are trying to understand in a better way. But at this time we really cannot understand it because it's not all given to us. Um, at this point. The second, beginning in chapter number 19, when we come to the marriage supper of the Lamb, we find literal happenings described with far less uh, symbolism and are therefore much easier uh, to interpret. So those are the two reasons uh, that we are going to kind of accelerate, but there are places and things through chapter number 12 through chapter number 18 that we'll be able to look at and to understand. We have studied through the seventh trumpet, Although the trumpet sounds in chapter number 11 and verse number 15, uh, the actual events that will occur are not recorded until chapter number 16. So again, like I said, this is, this is like a, a big parenthesis. Um, the interim chapters, 12 through 14, record a lengthy interlude between the sounding of the seventh trumpet and the beginning of the seven vials of wrath. 
This parenthetical section describes seven personalities who play important roles during the latter part of the tribulation period. And uh, if you've studied the book of Revelation or you've been taught the book of Revelation before, um, there, there honestly are probably uh, many different uh, takes on the things that we're about to study. And I don't want you to walk away from here going that pastor says that this is the only thing it can possibly be. There are going to be a couple times that I say that there is, it's undoubtedly this is what it is. But there are going to be other times that it's not as clear. And so I, all I can do, and I, and I know that it seems like that I'm setting myself up for failure, but I'm not. Um, all that I can do is I can just give you the information that I've studied and, and, the, and the perspectives that I've studied it from, from a Baptistic perspective um, and, and from an end times prophetic pr- perspective. And then it, you say, well, pastor, I learned it this way or somebody taught me that it was like this. Um, there, are, there are these things in these chapters that I would say to you, listen, we could argue this till we're blue in the face. And probably when we get to heaven, we're going to find out where we're all wrong. Okay. So that's not my purpose here. My purpose is is just to inform you and to help you understand um, in a a better way what these chapters are explaining, okay? So, number one, the sun-clothed woman. The sun-clothed woman. We find her in chapter number 12, starting in verse number one. The sun-clothed woman. Chapter number 12, starting in verse number one. The Bible says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun... And the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. So in in, uh, chapter number 12, verse number 1, here we have the sun-clothed woman. We have a woman that is, looks to be clothed with the sun, clothed with the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of 12 stars, and she's pregnant, and she's giving birth to a child. Now, very interesting thoughts here. Who is the sun-clothed woman? Well, let me give you some thoughts. The entire chapter symbolically describes the satanic hatred towards God plan, God's plan for the messianic line, Israel. If we, as we study through chapter number 12, you are going to see that literally this is symbolic of the satanic hatred towards God's plan, which is God's chosen people of Israel. And so uh, the, when we look at this, we have to look at it from that perspective. We have to take chapter number 12, not just two verses, but the whole chapter, and try to figure out what it's representing. Now, the woman in these verses seems to represent... Jacob, Rachel, and the tribes of Israel. It seems to, to represent that. And, and literally the idea of her giving birth or travailing in birth is talking about the pain of Israel. Uh, Genesis chapter number 37 is where we, we gather this thought from. It says, And he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And, it, and he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth. Who is he talking about here? Joseph. Good. Joseph is interpreting the dream. He's interpreting the dream to his father. 
Who's Joseph's father? Jacob. Who's his mother? Oh, I love it. Um, okay. It is Rachel. Jacob, Rachel, and Israel. I, I, I put it there in your, in your outline for you. That's why I wanted to back up and show you. Uh, these verses seem to represent Jacob, Rachel, and the tribes of Israel. So Joseph got a dream from God. Do you remember Joseph? You remember the story of Joseph? His brothers took him out, the coat of many colors, put the blood on it. Dad, your son is dead. They threw him in the pit. You remember? Sold him. He goes gets involved, or doesn't get involved with the wife, and, and the king gets mad, and then eventually he becomes the king's right-hand man, and then his brothers come, and what ends up happening? They bow down to him, and Joseph reveals himself. Do you remember that story? So the alliteration here is that in our passage of Scripture, Joseph, in Genesis chapter 37, is explaining his dream to Jacob, his father, and Jacob says, Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? Now, the, the, the alliteration here is that it has to do with Israel, and it has to do with the, the great wonder in heaven of the woman being Israel. And, and it's a full representation of the tribes. It's a full representation of who Israel really is. The sun-clothed woman, and, and this is where the... Uh, this is where... People get mixed up with this. I guess is the only way to say it. The sun-clothed woman does not specifically refer to Mary, the mother of Jesus. Many people say in Revelation chapter number 12 that this has to be Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, this woman. But it actually seems to picture the nation of Israel as the source of the Messiah, that she is Israel, meaning the sun-clothed woman is Israel, and she's travailing in birth with the Messiah, uh, because the Messiah comes out of Israel, and not just Mary, is corroborated by the fact that she is persecuted, beginning in verse number 13. And so, uh, we'll see that in just a few moments, all right? Uh, I know that made perfect sense to all of you. It's clear as mud, right? It'll get clearer, I promise, all right? Number two, the great red dragon. The great red dragon. These are the, the, the seven personalities. The great red dragon. We're going to start reading in verse number three. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to, what's the next word? Devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, this is, this is going to start making more sense to you about this unclothed woman. So, here we have the red dragon. And the red dragon is waiting for the birth of, symbolically, of what? The Messiah. That's right. Of the Messiah. Because the sun-clothed woman is representing Israel, she's giving birth to the Messiah. The great red dragon is there trying to eliminate the Messiah. In Scripture, did that happen? In Scripture, was the enemy, Satan, trying to eliminate Jesus? Yes. As a matter of fact, he did it multiple times trying to eliminate the Savior. There's cor it all correlates together. Now... There is no doubt as to the identity of this personality because he is named in verse number 9. Look at chapter 12 and verse number 9. 
And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the what? Devil. So he is identified. So, so there is no uh, um, doubt who this is. Now, the use of the symbolism of a dragon seems to indicate immense cruel, uh, cruelty. And the color red denotes a bloodthirsty personality. And so we have the red dragon, which, which dragons always represent cruelty. And the red representing a bloodthirsty personality. Now, the seven heads and the ten thorn, uh, horns clearly relate to the beast in chapter 13 and verse number 1. Look at chapter 13 and verse number 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea having what? Seven heads and how many horns? Ten horns and upon his horns ten crowns and upon his heads the name, or excuse me, upon his head the name of what? Blasphemy, that's right. The mission of the great red dragon is clear is to devour her. Who's her? The sun-clothed woman. Um, he, she, his goal is to devour her child as soon as it is born. Chapter 12, verse number 4. We read it just a moment ago. And, and uh, he stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, this phrase would certainly refer to at least three different events that occurred in the life of Jesus. We haven't done this yet in our study, but it's time for us to... Have group involvement. I love group involvement. All right. I need three people. Uh, I need uh, somebody to turn to Matthew chapter number two, verses 16 through 18. I need somebody to turn to Luke chapter number four, verse 28 and 29. I need somebody to turn to Mark chapter 15 and verse number 13. We're going to read these out loud. These events take place in scripture where the great red dragon um, is trying, or the devil, in essence, Satan, is trying to devour, (coughs) excuse me, the Messiah. Who has Matthew chapter number two? I need somebody have Matthew chapter number two. Miss <laughs> Tracy? All right, Matthew chapter number two. Read it to us, starting in verse number 16. Good. So, the wise men came, told him of Jesus, and his immediate response was what? To eliminate children two years and under, which would have put Jesus in that same category. Now, this was the enemy trying to eliminate the Messiah before, or or really right after the announcement that he was the Messiah, I mean, you think about that. The enemy, this is what is absolutely, um, I, 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 get, I get excited about certain things, and this is one of them. It is an, I'm in awe, I guess is the right way to say this, when you think about this. From the very beginning of time, do you remember, we can go back to the book of Isaiah, we can study it. Uh, we're not going to do it tonight, but if you go back to the book of Isaiah, you find out that Lucifer was initially where? In heaven, Right? And because of his pride, and because he wanted to be Jesus, his pride eliminated him from heaven. Do you remember that story? Remember that? that, Not story, it's truth. And so it eliminated him from heaven. And and so he was cast into hell. He was eliminated, and and all those that followed him were eliminated from heaven. Can I tell you something about him, though, that I don't think that we really grasp and understand? That the enemy, Satan, Lucifer... 
knows every single event that is going to take place in biblical history. Do you understand that? Do you know that when he got eliminated from heaven, he knew that Jesus was going to be born? He knew that sin was going to enter into the world. He knows that, that, that the birth was going to take place. He knows that his time is coming to an end in the book of Revelation. He knows that. So what did the enemy do? In Matthew chapter number 2, when the, when the Messiah was born, he geared up for it. He began to work through people. Just as he does today. He began to work through people to begin the process of trying to eliminate the Messiah. Because if he can eliminate the Messiah, he cannot have his end. Do you understand that? When we talk about combating the enemy, when we talk about about, uh, uh, trying to defeat the enemy, we're not talking about someone that, that doesn't know anything about the Bible. We're not talking about someone that, that, that doesn't understand life. We're talking about the enemy who began his reign as the right-hand man of, uh, of God, if I, could, if I could say it that way, and then was eliminated from heaven. Do you not think that he still does not want to be God? And so here we have from the very beginning of the Messiah's reign, he is trying to eliminate him. Who's got Luke chapter number 4? Go. That's right. This is not a very familiar uh, passage of scripture in the Bible, but literally, the the uh, the, the Jewish rulers. In Luke chapter number four, uh, Jesus was answering questions and he was telling them that he is the Messiah. They got mad and angry. And the Bible says that they took him out and they literally took him to, in essence, a cliff to push him off the cliff to eliminate him. And the Bible says that instead of Jesus going to the cliff, he went by his way. And, and what was that? That was, again, the enemy trying to eliminate the son of God. And then there was the ultimate one. Who's got Mark chapter number 15? Who's I? Go. Mark chapter 14. 15. Mark 15, 13. Yeah. The ultimate elimination was the crucifixion in the enemy's eyes. If I can just crucify him, if I can just kill him... I will win. What he forgot was is that nothing, nothing can hold God from doing what God wants to do. Nothing. Because the power of God is greater than anything. If you, don't, if you have not comprehended that through our little bit of study all the way now to chapter number 12, you've missed the whole point of Revelation. 
It's to display, it's to be in amazement and to be in awe of the power of God. Here the enemy says, well, I'll just kill him. And, and, and matter of fact, it was in such, uh, such prophetic order uh, and it was in such violent order that, that the people even said, hey, crucify him and release Barabbas. And they crucified him. And I can only just, and you know me, I, I picture things. I can only just imagine as the Bible says that Jesus was on that cross and he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what to do. And he gave up the ghost. I can almost imagine there was like a celebration that happened in hell. And they thought to themselves, we've won. We've won. But I want to remind you of something that I don't think we all totally understand. Is that the enemy knew that he was going to rise again. What was the enemy trying to do? He was trying to disrupt Christianity. He was trying to disrupt what was taking place in the followers of Christ. And by the way, he was successful. You say, how do you know? Because there was nobody other than Mary and the other Mary at the tomb on the third day when he said he was going to rise. They all said, he's gone. Our hope is gone. And do you remember what the angel said when Mary and the other Mary got to the tomb? He said, he's not here. He is risen. Just as he said he would. And what we need to understand, if we can really grasp this, grasp this thought and grasp this understanding, that when we look at the book of Revelation and we look in comparison to our own lives, and we think to ourselves, has God forgotten who I am? Has God forgotten where I'm at? Has God forgotten? Listen, God hasn't forgotten anything. God has already given you the victory. You already have it. You just have to claim it. The great red dragon did everything in his power to, uh, to eliminate the Messiah, but to no avail, to no avail. These attempts were all futile, and they all failed because of the power of God. Number three, the male child. So we talked about this unclothed woman. We talked about the red dragon who was there to eliminate the Messiah. And now, number three, the male child. Look at chapter number 12, verse number 5. And she brought forth a man child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. So, what do we have here? We have another account of the birth of the Messiah. The Bible says she gave birth to the child. And then the Bible says uh, that uh, he was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God. Look what it says. And to whose throne? His throne. His throne, that's right. So, let's look at that. Christ's birth is stated in verse 5, where he is identified as the one who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Then his ascension is mentioned. It's interesting. We went from her pregnancy to the enemy being there to her delivering to Jesus in heaven. We skipped his life, his ministry, 
and his crucifixion. Why would we skip all of that? Because remember, here in chapter number 12, this is a parenthesis. This is literally, and I don't know any other way to put it to you, this is literally rolling back uh, uh, history, if I could put it that way. It's rolling back history, and we're seeing things from a different perspective than we've seen as through the Gospels, because they were taking a physical perspective of this. We are now taking a spiritual, um, spirit world, if I could use that term, uh, connection to the things that are happening uh, behind the scenes. So why do we go from his birth all the way to him sitting on his throne? The reason for this is that the emphasis of this section is Satan's war against Christ. Uh, against Christ. Satan's plans to destroy him failed, and his ascension proves that even having him physically killed did not destroy the Messiah. It, it, it is not mentioned, all of those things that happened, because all of that in, in relation to the enemy was all a failure. There was nothing that the enemy could do to, to taint the prophetic prophecy and to taint what Jesus Christ was going to do on the cross and his life as it is today as we know it, sitting at the right hand of the Father. And so it it was literally uh, a failure on the part of the enemy. Since Satan failed to kill the Messiah, he turns his wrath to the woman who represents Israel, the Messianic line. He turns his wrath to the woman. And we're going to see that as we progress here. Christians must never forget the devil has a special hatred for the Jewish people and has been the, uh, has been the influence behind the anti-Semitism from the times of Pharaoh and Haman to Hitler and the list goes on and on. Did you see what just happened? If you've never studied this before, I hope you see this. This will help you put the puzzle pieces together. When you look at history, and you look at all that's happened to the Jews and the horrific things that have happened, the reason it's happened is because of the enemy. Because he knew he could not defeat Christ. So what does he go after? He goes after God's chosen people. Do you see that? I hope that kind of brings to light some things for you as you think about history and you think about why would God allow all this to happen? It's, it's the, it's the anti-Semitism, it's, it's the hatred, that word means hatred for the Jews. From the very times of Pharaoh and Haman to, of course, the horrible things of Hitler. And there are even recent events that are taking place against the Jews. And this is all happening because the enemy was not successful at eliminating Jesus Christ. So, let me put it to you this way. As much as God loves Israel, is as much as the enemy hates Israel. Do you see that now? Just as much, now I want you to understand this, just as much as God loves us if we are his children, is just as much as the enemy hates us. Why is all this happening in my life, Pastor? I don't understand. I shared with you on Sunday, out of the book of 1 Peter, brethren, think it not strange. The fiery trials which are to try you for as much as you know that you are partakers in Christ's suffering. 
You are partakers in Christ's suffering. The details of his wrath upon Israel during the Great Tribulation are described in chapter number 12, verses 13 through verse number 17. Let's look at that together. Chapter number 12, verses 13 through 17. And when the dragon saw that he was cast into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and a half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as, the, as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, uh, uh, literally, his wrath came upon Israel is where we're at. Um, and, uh, but before we see that um, description there, uh, we have to cover uh, uh, other events that are taking place. And so we'll see in a few moments where how that woman was able to um, hide herself out. Uh, Israel was able to hide herself out. And it all has to do with the 144,000 that we've already discussed. Let's look at number four, Michael. Let's look at Michael. Let's look at verse number seven, chapter 12, verse number seven. And, and really, this is the point in this study where um, I, I have to give you a little bit of homework, all right? Um, typically when we study the book of Revelation, and I didn't do it this time, um, but I, I'd encourage you to go home and do it. It's, it's very easy. Um, typically we study the book of Jude before we get into the book of Revelation. And the reason is, is because there are a lot of things that happen in the book of Jude which correlate with the book of Revelation. Jude is just one chapter. Um, if I could put a title on the book of Jude, it would be Contending for the Faith. And, uh, and, and we find Michael... Uh, Michael is the only angel that is called an archangel in all of the word of God. And so we find Michael here, but in Jude, we find Michael, um, he is at war um, over Moses' body. And uh, you read in the book of Jude about uh, Michael, the archangel there, and it will help bring to light what's happening here in Revelation chapter number 12, starting in verse number 7. Michael is the only angel in the Bible specifically called an archangel who is the guardian of God's people. Daniel chapter number 10, uh, verse 13, also verse number 21, and then, of course, in the book of Jude in verse number 9. So he is the only archangel uh, that is mentioned uh, in, in the word of God. After Michael defeats Satan and his angels, Satan is cast out of heaven. Uh, we see that in uh, chapter number 12, verse 7 through 9. Let's read it together. And there was a war in heaven. Uh, uh, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels. And what? Prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which has accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the 
end of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth huh, that he hath but a short time. Did you see that? And that's just a reiteration of what I was saying earlier. He, what was the next word? Knoweth. He knoweth that he hath but a short time. So after Michael defeats Satan and his angels, Satan is cast out of heaven. It is clear from chapter number 12, verse number 10, that Satan's defeat and war in heaven is connected with the birth, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We also see, according to verse number 10, that Satan does have access to heaven to accuse the brethren. We talked about this a little bit on Sunday. Remember us talking about that Satan's ultimate goal in his life is to accuse the brethren. And uh, we talked about uh, Job was a, a good uh, indicator of that, how that uh, the enemy went to God and said, if you'll just allow me to do this and this and this to Job, he will deny you. And God granted that request. We also stated that it's very important for us to understand, and this was all in relation to the sovereignty of God, that we understand that nothing happens without what? Without God's approval. That's right. Nothing happens without God's approval. And so here we have this war in heaven that is taking place. And I, 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 I don't know, I, I just picture things and I, I just see this taking place. He, here's Michael, he fought with uh, the enemy in Jude and now he's fighting with him again. And, and, and literally, uh, uh, this war that takes place, and now Michael becomes such a strength, and Michael becomes such a, a representation of God that literally has the power to cast Satan out of heaven into the earth. Now, we know this when we think about what we've learned in all of our lives. Who is the prince in the power of the air? Satan, that's right. He's the prince in the power of the air. Now, everything that happens has to be done by God's approval, but Satan is considered the prince of power of the earth. And why is that? Because he was cast out of heaven to the earth. And then the Bible says, woe, or watch out, to the inhabitants of the earth. Why? Because Satan is mad. He has been defeated. He's been defeated. I'm not a I'm not a huge boxing fan, okay, but lately there's been some major boxing news that have been taking place about this young lady who was undefeated and she finally got beat. And they said that when she got beat, that she wanted to commit suicide. That's how defeating it was to her. And then the article flipped, and, and again, I, I'm, not, I'm not advocating it whatsoever. Please don't think I am. But the, the illustration is there. The, the article flipped to where she went into her next fight. And because of the anger from her defeat, that's what she took into the ring to defeat the next opponent. That is exactly where the enemy is at. The enemy has lost the fight. So now what is he trying to do? He is trying to be us. And can I tell you something? And I really want you to get this. If you become defeated in your Christian life, it is not you who is defeated. It is the enemy who's won. Are you with me? I, I cannot stand the fact to think that the enemy can win. I can't. You know why? Because, and I know I quote this verse to you all the time, but I'm hoping one day that even starting right here with my own self, that we really let it seep all the way down to our very toes. Greater is he that is in me 
than he that's in the world. Do you understand what that word greater means? It means that the enemy has been defeated. It also means that the enemy cannot win if we allow God to go to battle for us. He can't do it. And so Satan does have access to heaven to accuse the brethren, but no matter what he accuses us of, if we rely upon God, we will find victory in it. When Satan is no longer able to attack the male child or to accuse the saints, he focuses all of his attention on the woman, Israel, described in verses 13 through 17, and we read that just a moment ago. As a result of Satan's persecution, this is very interesting to me, Israel will have to fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half a time from the face of the serpent. That serpent, that's verse number 14. What does that mean? What does that represent? Well, apparently, and this is an apparently. You remember I told you this is a definitive, this is an apparently, all right? Apparently, the fleeing remnant will find asylum in some wilderness place um, where God will protect and sustain them for those three and a half times or three and a half years. Who is the remnant? The remnant is undoubtedly the Jews who have turned to Christ. The reason is, is because in verse number 17, look what it says. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with her, uh, war with the remnant of her seed. And, and how do we know that, that they are ones that follow Christ, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, this is important. The wording here is important. If you were to transliterate this in the Greek, it's very important. He says in verse number 17, and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. It does not say the testimony of the Messiah. The reason is, is because these Jews, the remnant, have now accepted that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Do you understand that? They now have put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ during the tribulation. How did they get that way? The 144,000. We talked about that, remember? The 144,000 evangelized mostly to the Jews. And so now we have the remnant that is following Christ and have the testimony of Christ, these are the people that have not yet been eliminated. These are the Jews that have not yet been killed during the tribulation. Now, we're going to have to stop. I'm sorry. Um, I, love, I love it when you sigh. Because that means that you're into it. I love it. Um, but you, you, I'm just going to leave you with this thought. Um, when we talk about the enemy and we talk about his power, he has great power. When I, I've been praying a lot about what we're going to do next. And um, several of you have come to me and, and you've expressed a lot of interest. And, and I, I'm going to be very cautious, I have to tell you this. But I, I believe with all my heart that this is where God wants us to go next. Is when we're done with the book of Revelation, which will literally almost take us to... Um, our break that we take in the summer. But when we come back in the fall, we're going we're gonna to talk about the spirit world. We're going to talk about angels. We're going to talk about demons. We're going to talk about um, all of those things. Because those are, 
Those are subjects that seem to be very intriguing. I, I cannot tell you, probably almost everyone in this room is at one time over this study have come and talked to me uh, and, and saying, I, I don't understand how all that works, and I don't understand this, and I don't understand that. But, and so I, I think we're going to kind of hone in on it and look at it uh, from a biblical perspective, because I think a lot of times, especially with angels, um, there's, there's, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding. I, I really believe that. Um, and uh, so we'll look at it from a biblical perspective. But the, the one thing that I really want you to understand is that we cannot discount the power of the enemy. We cannot. There is only, and I want you to see this, there are only two, and I want to be cautious here, uh, there's only one person and one spirit that has ever defeated the enemy. And that is God, and that is Michael the Archangel. So if we ever decide to take on the enemy on our own, we are going to be defeated. Do you understand that? It is only through the power of God that we can overcome. So my challenge to all of us, starting right here with me, is this. It's that we stop relying on ourselves to win a victory. But rather, we give it to God... Allow him to fight the battle for us. Wait a minute, watch it. And then when it's over, we don't give ourselves the pat on the back. We give the praise where praise is due. Because this is what I know about God, okay? And this is the only way I know to explain it to you. I think God is a lot like a father. The Bible calls him Abba Father, right? I think he's a lot like a father. If you were to come to me, you know I have three boys. If you were to come to me and you were to start, and I've told you this before, you, you start bragging on my boys. I mean, there could be 30 people talking to me, but I'm not going to hear anybody else except for the person that's bragging on my son. I'm not. Now, you walk up to me and tell me everything that he's doing wrong, I'm liable to say, excuse me for a moment. <laughs> right? But when you're bragging on him, you've got my attention. Why? Because for a dad... There's just, it's just, excuse the word, it's just prideful. I mean, let's just be honest, you know. You're bragging on my kid. When, when God, when, when, when the Holy Spirit of God, and the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, when, when, when the victory is won in our lives, don't you think that God wants to be bragged on? Don't you think he wants his son to be bragged on? So many times we pray and we say, God, I need this and I need that and I need this and I need that. And then it happens and it's like, well, that was great. Look what I did. And we never go back and say, God, thank you. Thank you for what you did. Let me, let me give you a quick example. I'm, I'm side noting here. Excuse the rabbits. How many of you have ever taken a trip? Go on vacation. This is what we do. You ready? I do this every time. We get in the car. We crank the car up. We say, okay, let's pray. That's what we always do. Lord, I pray that you'll help us as we travel, keep us safe, keep the idiots away from us. <laughs> right? We arrive, everybody's frustrated, we're ready to get out of the car, bring them in the kids in the house, get them in the bed as soon as possible, and let's relax, it's vacation. What about, thank you, Lord, for... Right? 
Oh, I, I, I don't think about that. I used to be the same way. Until one day I was driving down I-75 and five cars in front of me. It was a horrific accident. I literally was able to get out of my car and sit on my hood for about three and a half hours right outside of Atlanta. Horrific. And I remember sitting there and there's all these people around me. We're all doing the same thing because you just can't go anywhere. There's nowhere to go. And as I was sitting there, I got to thinking to myself, one, two, three, four, me. Right? Boy, I'm going to tell you something. When I arrived at my final destination, yeah, I was frustrated. It was three hours longer than it was supposed to be. Yeah, I was ready to get in the bed. Lord, first of all, thank you for allowing me to be five cars back. And secondly of all, whomever was in that vehicle, Lord, your will be done in their lives. There's never been another trip in my life where I have not started with prayer and ended with prayer. Simplistic. Praising God for victories in your life. No matter how big or how small we think they are. We're willing to pray the prayer to ask, but what about the prayer to say thank you? And tonight, as we look at just these first four personalities, there is so much in this thought process to be thankful for, starting with the very birth of our Savior, and then the defeat of our enemy. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for a wonderful night tonight. Thank you for allowing us to study your word. Lord, I pray that we're encouraged tonight. Lord, I pray that we'll take away things that will help us. And uh, Lord, that uh, you will just be in our lives. Lord, thank you for everything you've done. Lord, I know we don't thank you enough. But Lord, for the life that you've given to us, for all the blessings that you bestow upon us. Lord, give us a great rest of the week. We look forward to worshiping with you again on Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.